What does it mean for Christians to be created in the image of God? It starts at a really basic place, and that is of serving people out of recognition that they are made in the image of God. You know, the idea really simply is that what people ought to receive is that there are certain ways that they should be viewed and treated simply because they're people. But I think as Christians, we're called to bring a helping hand to anybody who's in need. So we serve the world around us in whatever way that we can. And we especially show that by caring for one another within the family of God. Welcome to the special Human Dignity series on the Way Home podcast. For the next several weeks, we'd like to highlight topics from my brand new book, The Dignity Revolution, where we focus on exactly what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means both for how we think about ourselves, but also how we think about the world around us. Today, I wanted to talk to Dr. John Kilner, who is the former president and CEO of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he still serves as professor of bioethics and contemporary culture. Dr. Kilner's book, Dignity and Destiny, which is arguably the best academic treatment of uh, what it means to be created in the image of God, was really formative for me as I was writing The Dignity Revolution. So I wanted to bring Dr. Kilner on to talk about what exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God? How have Christians gotten that wrong? How are we tempted to get it wrong today? And what are the implications of that? Before we jump into this interview, I'd like to let you know that the Dignity Revolution is available for pre-order. And for a limited time, if you pre-order my book, we'd like to give you a free one-year subscription to Light Magazine. This is a terrific magazine that comes out twice a year and features really original and fresh essays and articles and interviews about important topics to the Christian life. So go to my website, danieldarling.com, click on the image for the Dignity Revolution, and you'll have instructions there on how you can pre-order my book and also get a free subscription to Light Magazine. Dr. John Kilner with me on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, good to be with you. So uh, your book, Dignity and Destiny, was really formative for me as I was working on this project on the Dignity Revolution. And uh, I, I, I guess I first, before I wanted to get into some questions about human dignity, uh, I want to ask you, what was it that really spurred you to, to kind of do some scholarly work on the Imago Dei and human dignity? Yeah, well, after engaging in uh, bioethical debates, you know, all these debates over human life and and human dignity and all these questions where people just seem to be shouting uh, back and forth at one another. And so often it seems like we're not making any headway. We're not even having any good communication. I reached a point where I was wondering, you know, is there some deeper level, um, some level at which we could really have meaningful communication, meaningful engagement, you know, how deep would you have to go in order to find some common ground for truly engaging people who espouse positions really different than your own? And after a lot of reflection and discussion with other people, it really seemed that this notion of uh, the idea that people matter was that common ground that we were looking for, um, you know, that, that most everybody doesn't believe, you know, I could just walk up to you and, you know, oppress you, abuse you, do anything that I want to because, you know, people matter. There's some sort of significance there. And so the question becomes, why? W- what's the basis of that? Why do people matter? 
And so that's we're it's the same question: uh, Is there such a thing as human dignity? That's what it amounts to. You know that it's so interesting you, you raise that because um, when I was studying, you know, one of the things that was so interesting is just how when you think about, like, for instance, the UN Declaration on Human Rights and and yes. other sort of statements about human dignity, I think there's a consensus that people do matter. But as you said, like, without a Christian ethic underneath that, it's hard for people to actually articulate why they matter, right? I mean, like... That's right. That's why right. exactly do they matter? And so Christianity seems to f- to fill that in, right? Exactly. I mean, I th- And I think people recognize that it's important to be able to affirm that. But when you really take a look at other ways of looking at the world and making decisions about life, it seems like <clears throat> they really don't give you that basis. You know, Christians, I think most ordinary Christians would say and believe, okay, humans are created in the image of God. We believe that. But I don't I don't know that if we fully understand what that means. And one of the things I really appreciated about your book was you kind of walking through some, you know, bad interpretations of that, some ways that we've gotten it wrong. Before we get into those though, I just want to if you could kind of give a, just a lay level definition, like what does it mean for Christians to be created in the image of God? Sure. Well, you know, in order to understand that, I think we need to recognize that when the Bible was written, the idea of something being the image of something was uh, a common expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't some obscure you know, theological notion or whatever. Um, and it had to do with two ideas, uh, connection and reflection. You know, if something was an image of something else. There was a close connection between them. And uh, one was reflecting something about uh, the other thing. So uh, you see this even in the Bible. For example, in um, uh, Daniel 3, uh, the image of... Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, there's the declaration goes out, whoever does not fall down and worship the image shall immediately be mm-hmm. thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Well, what that's all about is that the image it stands for is closely connected to uh, whatever it's representing and how you view and how you treat the image is tantamount to how you're viewing and treating the original. And mm-hmm. so, you know, kings could be the image of gods or statues could be the images of kings. So when we come to the Bible, the clearest statement, interestingly enough, about what the image of God is, um, is reserved, is not revealed until the New Testament, where we find in both Colossians 1 and 2 Corinthians 4 that Jesus Christ is the image of God. I mean, that's about as as clear and straightforward a a statement as you can find. Um, Now, when you look at the passages that are talking about people, Um, it's saying that people are in the image of God. There's that preposition in Mm. there, you know, in or according to, and it's very consistent. I mean, it's not there when you're talking about Christ. Christ is the image of God. But with the important uh, biblical passages in Genesis 1 and Genesis 5 and Genesis 9 and Colossians 3 and James 3, it's always there. Now, you may say, Oh, come on. <laughs> what what difference does you know, a little preposition make? Well, I mean, just think of it in everyday terms. If you say that a person is in a pool, okay, we understand. We have a picture of that. But if we say a person is a pool... It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a big difference. I mean, that's absolutely it's a huge difference. Now, actually, so what does this preposition mean? Well, we don't have to invent anything. Uh, if you just look at the standard, you know, lexicons like Kaler and Baumgartner on the Old Testament, the the prepositions are talking about uh, according to, the sense of according to. We're, we're created 
in the image of God, meaning created according to the image, um, according to some sort of standard. Now, in the Old Testament, that just would have been God himself, but in the New Testament, that's revealed to be Jesus Christ. And so what it's saying is, is that although people are fallen today, people have a special connection with God. God is their creator. God has made them. And they are created, they're intended to be a meaningful reflection of God. Now, that's very important. Again, it's not that they are the image of God, that they are reflecting God, that they are, you know, successfully (laughs) communicating all of God's attributes to the world. It's a statement that they are created according to that image, that God's intentions, that God's purposes for humanity, that God's standard for who people are to be is manifested to us in Christ. And we are to to, to live out, to develop according to that standard. Mm. Can you explain a little bit more? Because I think that's one of the fascinating things about the way the, the Bible talks about humanity and something that I don't mm-hmm. think Christians really get. Uh, at least I didn't get it until I started studying. I mean, I think we know from Genesis mm-hmm. one twenty six that humans are created in the image of God. And I think we sort right. of forget about it. And we get to the New Testament, and we don't really connect connect it to the New Testament, where, as you said, the New Testament clearly says that Jesus Christ is the image of God, and there's a lot of talk in the New Testament about about being conformed to the image of Christ. You know, Paul talks about this, and so how do how do we connect those two? Number one, and number two, what does Jesus being the image of God mean for our humanity? Right. Well, um, you know, simply put, to establish Christ as a standard first. It's talking about when you read the, the passages surrounding um, those places where it's discussed, 2 Corinthians 4 uh, and Colossians 1, you see it's talking about not only uh, Christ's connection with God, but that Christ is a reflection of various attributes of God. So our being in that image means that we are to reflect various attributes of God. We are, we are created in this world to be a source of glory to God. So, you know, we can talk a little bit about what that means, but simply put, you know, Christ being the the, the standard, Christ being the image of God, um, that's the, we are to be a manifestation of the, the various attributes of God, the, the character of God. Um, as you're saying, the, the New Testament is a reflection of the old. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, we're created according to the image. In other words, God has that standard for us at the very beginning for who we are to be. And Adam and Eve were created uh, well along the way. I mean, they weren't 100% of the way there because we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that there was still yet to be, um, uh, people were intended to become uh, imperishable, um, unable to die. Adam and Eve were not in that state yet. And they were to have a glorified spiritual body for all eternity. They weren't there yet either. So there was still development to come. But in many ways, they were created to and already able to manifest various attributes of God. And then we know the fall took place and, and people in their sin became self-focused rather than God-focused. And so the New Testament is all about the fact that now we are called to be Uh, reborn, to be created anew. And so this idea of the image of God as the standard, and more specifically Christ as the image of God as the standard, now surfaces in a way that's perfectly in harmony with our original creation. And so you have those various passages that um, 
as in Colossians 3, we are being renewed according to God's image, according to the image of God in Christ. We are to become conformed to God's image, Romans 8. In fact, Romans 8, 29 even indicates that this was God's purpose from the very beginning. So this is all one unified plan that we are originally created according to the image, intended to manifest various attributes of God. And when we fell away, God has made a provision, Jesus Christ as the standard for our renewal, for our recreation. So I, I want to follow up on that last part and just dig in a little bit. So is it correct to say that that in Christ, God restores us to our image-bearing purposes? Uh, so I think of like Ephesians 2.10 where he talks about that we were essentially saved to to do the works that God had originally planned for us to do. Would that be the right way to phrase that, to say that? Yeah, I think that God's God's purposes never change for humanity. And so that's why we want to say that we are we are created in the image of God. We're created according to that standard. And that is always the case, ever the case. It doesn't matter whether we've fallen or not. It doesn't matter whether we're in sin or whether we're at the beginning of creation. That's a statement about God's purposes for us. And so what happens is that when we fall, when we become sinful, when we become focused on ourselves, we are no longer uh, carrying out those purposes uh, for which we were created. And so what happens in Christ is that we are recreated, we are made new, and we recognize now, um, perhaps for the first time, the purposes for which we were actually created, and that was to to glorify God, to manifest God's attributes to the world, to carry out, as you say, uh, the works of, of God. And so we are always, throughout all of those things, always in the image of God, because being created in the image of God, being in the image of God, is about is a statement about God's purposes. It's not a statement about how good we are, how, how well we manifest various attributes in our actual life right now. Otherwise, some people would be more in the image than other people, and you know, and the, the image could be destroyed or lost or whatever. And, and none of that is biblical language. I want to spend some time on that, actually. One of the things that was the, the most helpful about your work on this is really pushing back against, and, and I even hear, you know, people, well-meaning people who have no malicious intent, you know, good people that I admire, will say things like, and I probably used to say this before I started studying <laughs> this, that, um, you know, the image has been marred uh, because mm -hmm. of the fall, or the image of God has been diminished because mm -hmm. of the fall. What do you say to that? Right. Well, I mean, time for confessions here. I used to speak that way too. And not all the time, but, you know, sometimes. And what that reflected was just never having studied the idea biblically or thought through what the implications of that way of speaking is. But once you realize in Scripture that the image of God is Christ, then to say that the image of God is damaged by sin I mean, is in effect be saying that, that Christ is damaged. Now, we know from, of course, Hebrews 13 and all scripture that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, there's no changing going on in Christ or in Christ as the standard for who we are to be. So as soon as you recognize that this is all about the standard for us, not a statement about uh, who we are, 
then it looks rather differently. I mean, even in, according to the language of Scripture, even the idea of being in the image of God, when we read about it in like Genesis 9, 6 and James 3, 9, we're talking there all about people after the fall. And, and in fact, we're talking about people who we would be tempted to kill or to curse in those passages. And, and, and the Bible says that those people are in the image of God. So clearly it's not something that is that changes in people at all or that can be damaged or whatever, or else that wouldn't make sense the way the Bible talks about it, that people, even the worst people are in the image of God. So therefore you have to view them and treat them in certain ways. And I think, Dan, what's going on is that people often in their minds confuse uh, people, human beings, and the image of God. And it's people who are damaged by sin, not the image of God that's damaged by sin, because the image of God is the standard according to which we are to be. Uh, And through our growth in Christ, it's not God's image that's restored. People are. So that's why when the New Testament says Christians are being renewed according to God's image. You see, there's not a changing image there. It's that people are changing according to that standard that God has lifted up in Christ so that they can become conformed to God's image. The image isn't changing. So it's not the idea of an image being damaged and marred and an image being restored. It's people who are damaged and marred by mm-hmm. sin, and they are being restored. The image is the standard according to which we are created and intended to be. I mean, if we don't have that, then then we've lost the standard of who we are to be. If it's damaged by sin, there's no standard for judging sin. And to be human can mean anything. <laughs> I mean, there's no standard. There's no Christ. Everything is okay. And so a lot is at stake here. Yeah, there is a lot at stake, and uh, it really is important, obviously, that we don't fall prey to the idea that people can lose the image of God. Obviously, that has had you know devastating mm. effects uh, throughout time yes. in history. Even Christians, right, have yes. have labeled some groups as being oh um, yes, not having the full image of God because of the fall. That's right. Um, That's can right. You, can you speak uh, about the danger of not seeing? I, I guess two things. One of not oh, of seeing mm-hmm. some people as having less than the image of God, and number two, kind of limiting the image of God to just our godlike capacities, our you you know our utility. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Well, what's really common um, when people talk about being in the image of God or what the image of God is about is that they identify um, something in particular, and usually they're they're moved by a particular passage in the Bible that talks about being in the image of God. And so they may home in on uh, being in the image of God as being about relationships uh, or about you know love um, in, in some sort of context. Or maybe they home in on our rational capacities or our reason, um, or on our righteousness and our spiritual dimension, um, or our rulership over creation. There are passages in Scripture that connect all of these ideas somehow with the idea of being in the image of God. But if the if being in the image of God is about having any one of those capacities or attributes or traits right now, well, then, of course, it's a very quick and logical conclusion that, well, then those people that don't manifest those traits, that don't have those capacities or don't have them very well developed, 
then have the image of God marred or damaged in them. And of course, if, if the image of God is what is the basis for human dignity and for our significance of human beings, well, then those people are less worthy of respect and protection. And you can see that playing out in all sorts of different arenas historically. Uh, for example, um, uh, Thomas Aquinas argued that the image of God in mentally compromised people mm -hmm. is practically non-existent. Uh, and Emil Bruner um, argued the protection of being in the image of God ceases where true human living ceases on the borderline of imbecility. So this idea of, you know, mental capacities, if we don't have them, then we're not imaging God. Uh, the image of God is damaged or destroyed in us. So therefore, um, we are not worth very much, relatively speaking. Now, it won't surprise you or any of your listeners to know that Adolf Hitler picked up this notion and used it influentially among Christians to argue, as he does in Mein Kampf, uh, his manifesto, that deformities of the image of God ought to be cleansed from society. So there's the idea that, yeah, the, the image of God can be damaged in people when certain traits or characteristics are not evidenced in them, like, you know, being really healthy or being really productive in society or being of a particular race. Um, mm -hmm. At that same time, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, Sr. in the U.S. was arguing that Native Americans are not as fully God's image as mm -hmm. the white man is, so it's appropriate for the red man to be rubbed out, as he put it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Karen Teal, in her book, Racism and the Image of God, has documented the image-related exploitation that led to the death and enslavement of millions and the domination of millions more over the course of history. Mm -hmm. And you've already referred to the period of, of slavery in the United States, and, and historian Kyle Fedler, a uh, Christian historian, observes that during America's early years, many theologians, both Northern and Southern, held that black men and women were not made in the image of God. Mm. Now, this extends not, not only, and, and this is something that continues to this day. I mean, you have to realize there are groups around today, like the group, uh, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, who argue literally that only white people, quote, walk in God's image upon this earth. Now, this is something that's played out also very seriously in terms of an impact on women. And you look through the various documents in the history of the church. Um, one landmark document, the Decree of 1140, argues literally, quote, woman is not made in God's image, neither can she teach nor be a witness nor give a guarantee. And this is all rooted as in issues of race or issues of disability, by saying if certain people don't manifest certain traits or characteristics that we deem to be what God is all about, then the image is missing from them or is damaged in them or is lost in them. And um, in fact, it's an entire book that's been written under the title Not in God's Image mm. that is just about how this notion has been used to oppress um, and neglect women in the history of the church. So, I mean, we could go on and on and yeah. on, but this is just to say, you're, you're exactly right, Dan. This is something that, that has huge implications because once we see this as something about people's traits and characteristics, it really then turns the focus. This is not about God anymore. This is really about people and who measures up, whose significance, who gets to be respected and protected. The biblical notion is completely different. 
is something that attaches to every human being because it's a statement about God's purposes, God's intentions, not a statement about actual traits and capacities that we have today. Mm, that's that's really good. I think even well-meaning people sometimes reduce what it means to be in the image of God based on our creative abilities or thinking, you know, the, the godlike capacities. But sure, and it's a subtle difference because God does want those things to mm-hmm. be developed in us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Let's move from that to just asking the question: uh, This powerful vision of human dignity that is that is rooted in the scriptures, and I would argue, and I argue, argue my book, and I think you've argued persuasively that this is one of the best gifts that Christianity gives to the world if it's understand yes. properly. Yes. But how does this change the way we see ourselves and see see the world, right? It, it kind of disrupts mm. the way we see <laughs> issues That's and right. people and all sorts of things, right? Yes, oh, absolutely, absolutely. For instance, one of the things that I... You know, I think about quite often is I think we most often associate it with, I think rightly, with sanctity of life for the unborn. And when we think about oh, yes. uh, abortion and the fact that you know that's a that's a human being there that has full dignity from God knit in their mother's yes. womb. And I think the pro life movement has been really good at using this language, uh, but it doesn't really stop there, right? I mean, I think if we if we fully understand what human dignity means, then it really has implications for other issues we think about, right? Like immigration, like healthcare, like all kinds of all kinds of issues. Oh, absolutely. Because what it comes right down to, um, being in God's image uh, makes a huge difference for, I mean, all those groups that we were just talking about um, a couple minutes ago. I mean, people who differ on the basis of their race or their gender or their ability or their degree of development, you know, as you talked about in terms of uh, uh, people before birth. If we're talking about people being created in the image of God, then we no longer measure people's significance according to those various traits. I mean, instead, we see that all people's human beings, they ought to be viewed and treated in certain ways. And, you know, the whole idea of human rights comes from that rightly understood. Now, it's a notion that is, you know, easily abused, but you know, the idea really generically simply is that what people ought to receive or to be protected from, that there are certain ways that they should be viewed and treated simply because they're people. So people are in the image of God, so how they're treated matters. And uh, the, the idea is that rights need to be tied closely to the dignity of all people. Otherwise, rights become what they, uh, sadly, all too often become today, and that is they can degenerate into mere assertions of ourself, you know, with no regard for others. In other words, rights is all about, you know, my rights as opposed to you, and it's a vehicle to lift me up and to put others down. But I think rightly, biblically understood, human rights are really God's rights over humanity, (laughs) more than one person's rights over another. Mm. You see, it's the idea that God has created all people, so God gets to direct how they view and treat one another. Mm. And human significance then comes from God's connection with people and the divine reflection God intends them to be. Hmm. Even in the in the subtle ways that we think about people and the way that we consider people, and I think about even the way that we do church that, you know, 
people coming to church, do we do we see them not as sort of what they can do for us or uh, uh-huh. you know, based on their their looks or their competence, but seeing them as whole people, right? That's right. That's an important thing that when people get into the idea of, oh, being created in the image of God, that's about, you know, our, our relational capacities, uh, you know, our rational capacities or some sort of thing like that. Miss that very idea, Dan, just what you're talking about. When you look at the Bible, it says that people, that the person is created in the image of God. Notice it's not talking about some particular aspect or part or capability or trait. It's the entire person that's created in the image of God. And so the entire person is to be respected and treated with dignity. Mm. I also think about the Bible the way Jesus talks about power and the way the kingdom of God is that, you know, not many, as it says, um, God uses the weak things to confound the wise and sort of like the, the way that the kingdom of God sort of disrupts the way we think about power and what way we think about who's important and who's not. That's right. Well, your work is very, very important on this. And I highly recommend uh, Dignity and Destiny. I'm grateful for, for your advocacy on, on this and on, on bioethics and, and everything else uh, that you've done in this field, uh, which I think is really a, a needed for the church, you know, what do you think a recovery of a robust view of human dignity would do? How do you think it would change uh, the way that the church interacts in the world? Right. Well, I think it would in in so many ways. You know, some people would think that well, to to focus too much on our creation, the image of God, and our significance as human beings is to uh, diminish the importance of uh, evangelism. Um, you know, what do we need to to worry about then? I mean, if everybody is great and significant and wonderful and, and that sort of thing. But, <laughs> of course, that that is not a, a logical implication at all because, again, being in the image of God, creating the image of God, is not a statement about us. It's a statement about God. It's a statement about God's standards for who we are to be. So if, in fact, in the world in which we live, we disregard those standards, we reject those standards, we neglect those standards, we pay no attention to them and go about living our own way, that has eternal consequences. So as important as, as the idea of being creating the image of God is for how we view and respect people in this world, it is hardly something that diminishes the importance of evangelism. I mean, if anything, it lifts up uh, a model, which is, which is absolutely glorious, about uh, all that God has intended for us. Um, and includes an, an eternal life with a, a marvelous spiritual body. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 is, is absolutely amazing. And so when we understand what, what God has in mind, what the standard is all about, it should create in us a, a, a deep longing that, that all the people around us would be able to experience that and uh, to know that. But it also uh, gives us a, a recognition that it also gives us the opposite uh, of what we talked about historically, the idea that certain groups or individuals would be put down. Rather, it becomes a, a rallying cry for how people should be viewed and treated. And, and Dan, I must say, honestly, I hear people all the time talking about why isn't the church more engaged in the issues of our day? 
in the way that people are being viewed and treated in many in many churches in many places. I mean, of course, there are plenty of, of exceptions to the uh, to the contrary, but you know, in all too all too many cases, for whether it's congregations or individuals, uh, there's just not that that fervor, that passion. It's almost as if something in the biblical teaching um, has been left out or de-emphasized or, or, or people have missed it. And so the, the fire has not been ignited. And I really think that that has to do with this idea of the image of God. Mm. All that people know is it's kind of a slogan, but they don't know what it means. And they haven't worked out the implications of that for how they should view um, this world and the people of this world. And I think that if that can be recaptured, I'm very excited about your book coming out. I can't wait to read it. And I, I think that if people can lay hold of this, it can make a huge difference in the church living out its mission in the world. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I agree with you. Imagine what a robust recovery of this doctrine would, would do for the church. Thank you so much, yes. Dr. John Kilner, for joining me. And thank you for your work. And uh, we look forward to encouraging people to uh, continue to engage with what you've done. Excellent. Keep up the good work, Dan. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.